Good to be with you here today and share God's Word. This isn't a church that I'm unfamiliar with because uh, we, over the last number of years that Penny has uh, attended here, uh, we have joined her on occasion. We generally sit way up at the top there because when we come with her, we always come late. In fact, I didn't even know you sang before the sermon, so uh, anyway... Good to, good to be with you. I don't know how you felt this morning, but uh, as I got up, finding my heavy coat, my hat and my gloves, I'm going, as a Northern Californian, born and bred there, when is spring coming? <laughs> this is ridiculous. It, it, it is, it's the beginning of March. And as I thought about that, it's, that's very much like the Lord's return. You know, we know spring is coming, we just don't know when it's coming. <laughs> Christ is very clear that he is coming back. We just don't know exactly when that will be. But just as you long for spring, uh, the reason I am bringing you to four texts over the next five weeks and I know that sounds strange, but I was only able to preach two weeks in a row. Then we already had airline tickets to visit a daughter who lives in New Hampshire, and then two more weeks. So that's why it's four weeks over five weeks. Just as, I want, just as you long for spring to come, I want you to have in your soul, in your very being, a longing for the return of Jesus Christ. I don't know that we talk about this a lot, uh, Back in the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of prophetic conferences, but, but we don't talk much that way. And so I hope that over the, these four sermons, uh, you will develop a longing and a passion for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say that, I want you to know what I'm not going to do. We are not going to set a date. Uh, we're told that no one knows when Christ is going to return. It will be like a thief in the night, the tinkling of an, an eye, uh, like a master who goes on a long journey and the servants don't know when he's coming back. We're not going to set a date. And neither are we going to address some of the theological words that surround the return of Christ, like uh, Will his coming be a pre or post or amillennial return? Or will we be raptured pre, mid, or post-tribulation? We're not going to be dealing with those things. I know you have a lot of great theologians in this uh, congregation. You're blessed with that. Uh, teachers at Moody... I don't think you have any teachers at TED's, but you have a lot of good students at TED's. So I'm going to leave those issues <laughs> to be solved by those men and those women, okay? But what I want to address is, what do we do with this concept that Jesus is coming back? And I would hope it's soon. How do I live out my life on a daily and a weekly and a monthly basis? What do I do? with Jesus Christ coming. 
And so over these four weeks, we're going to look in next week. And I was thinking about that. Jesus Christ is coming back, live in readiness. Matthew, uh, Mark, March 24th, Jesus Christ is coming back, engage in his coming. And March 31st, Jesus Christ is coming back, good day or bad day. And as I was thinking of the time change next week, if there are at least 25 of you who come an hour late, I will preach the sermon a second time, okay? Because it's important for you to hear about uh, living in readiness. But today, we're looking at the topic of Jesus Christ is coming back, stay on task. Well, if we're going to stay on task, we have to know what our task is. And I find our task very simply described for us in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. This is where we're going to begin. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Very simple, very straightforward, very clear. That is our task. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. These are his final words. We look a little lower in the text and and we find that Christ leaves. In Acts, Luke records to us a little more fleshing out when Jesus says, we'll go into all Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, and then he raises up into the heavens. So these are the last words that Jesus gave, very important words. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. I'm going to begin with the first part of that, go into all the world. This is the place you and I are supposed to go and carry on the work of Christ. Acts chapter 1.8, I'll read reference it, uh, clarifies it a little bit more. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. I've been in all those locations. As I think of the remotest parts of the earth, I think of... Uh, For a number of years, I served as global missions pastor at a church in Austin, Texas. And during that time, we had a project in southern Sudan. And so we would fly into Nairobi and transfer to a little puddle jumper of a plane. I mean, it was so small that before you got on the plane, they weighed you on a scale and then decided which side of the plane you should sit on. And then we landed in Lokachoa, the most northern place we could land in Kenya, uh, where we'd find a mission plane. We'd get on that, and we'd fly up into the hills of the Dadinga Mountains of southern Sudan, get off on a dirt strip once the cattle had been removed, and we'd hike two miles to Nagashat the town where we were ministering. Certainly, that was the remotest part of the world for me. The reason Jesus wants us to do that is because he wants everyone to hear about him. He does not anyone want anyone to miss out. We're supposed to go to the places that aren't just easy, the places you enjoy, the places that are beautiful, 
the places that are pleasant. But we are also supposed to go to the hard places, the hot places, the humid places, the dirty places, the crowded places, the ugly places, and the dangerous places. There's no place that should be excluded from his command. We should go to the cities and the small towns. We should go to the free and the totalitarian governed countries. We should go to the west, the east, the north, and the south. We should go to the mountains and the jungles. And we should go to the peaceful and strife-torn places. No place should we miss. And so I ask Evanston Bible Church, what are you doing corporately? Are you fulfilling the task that God has given to you to go into all the world? But not just corporately. What are you doing individually? Are you doing all you can do to fulfill God's command? Now, of course, you can't go to every single place on the face of the earth, but God will definitely direct you corporately and individually to be involved in his task, to fulfill his command. And you need to be on task in doing this until he returns. Well, notice what we're supposed to do when we get out there into all these places. It says, and preach the gospel. So that's what we do when we arrive. But in order to do that, we need to know what exactly is the gospel. Now, you might think it is strange for me to even come to a clarification of the gospel. But I bet if we did a quiz and I gave you a sheet of paper and a pencil and said, would you write out the gospel for me? Not everyone here would be able to do it with clarity. And so if we are going to preach the gospel, we need to know what we are going to preach. And so that's why I am taking you over to, I think, a great text which helps us understand the gospel. And that is found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. <clears throat> For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. I believe this is a great synopsis of what the gospel is and what it is about. And we discover the gospel has a past element, a present aspect and a, a future element. Uh, what is the past event? Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So what is grace that appeared? Well, grace is unmerited favor. And in this case, it's God's unmerited favor. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is absolutely no reason that Christ should die for me. 
There is absolutely no reason that Christ should die for you other than that he chose to do it because you clearly needed it. All have fallen short of the glory of God. You and I clearly do not deserve God's grace, but he gave it. It's something we cannot earn. It is strictly given. In a short time, you're going to have an offering. That's good. I want you to give to the offering, but you know what? You do not make points with God. He does not love you anymore because you give to the offering. It's good you got out of bed and came this morning, but you are not getting any more love from God. You do not get points. Now, he is pleased you are here worshiping him, but you don't gain any points. And then we're going to take communion. He loves that you remember his work, but he doesn't love you anymore because you do that. Grace is unmerited favor. I can't do anything for it. God just gave it to me. But notice it says, the grace of God appeared. How did it appear? Well, it wasn't too long ago you celebrated Christmas. That was the appearing of God's grace. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we have recorded for us the words the angels spoke to Joseph. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so at Christmas time, the grace of God appeared. The God who is invisible and cannot be seen and therefore not fully understood, showed up, and his name is Jesus. This is said of Jesus in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so this invisible God, who we could not see, can now be seen in the person we know as Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. The grace of God has appeared. And when it appeared, the text tells us, bringing salvation to all men. That's what we celebrate Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. The salvation that came because of God's grace. How did Jesus bring it? Jump down to verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. In verse 14, we discover that Christ gave himself because we needed him. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And why did he do this? Verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. 
You see, Jesus paid a ransom price in order to set us free from the bondage of sin. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 uh, records it this way. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And why did he do this? Verse 14 goes on to say, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. God wanted a people who would worship him and serve him and love him and with whom he could dwell. And we learn about that dwelling in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19-20. Or do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. God dwells with us through his Spirit in us. And we give ourselves to that, and that's called lordship, God's control and direction over our life. And the end result, we're told, is for zealous good works, and that's what he has saved us for. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we were created, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is so a, a great picture of what salvation is all about, the past event of the gospel. And who was it for? Go back to verse 11. For all men and women and children. Now, this is not universalism that is being described here. But rather, everyone has the opportunity. Just like Noah, who preached for a hundred years and only eight got on the boat. Or Lot, who preached to the city on the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah and only three fled to safety. It's a choice we have of receiving this grand and great event, the appearing of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's the past event. But it's also a present reality. In verse 12, we read about something that I want to call transformation, instructing us deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That past event was singularly God's work. There was nothing we could do for it. But when we move down to verse 12, this idea of transformation, we discovered there's actually a partnership between us and God's working in our lives through the Holy Spirit to change us. You see, as we dwell on Christ, as we look at Christ and his love for us, as he died on the cross, as he spent himself, his blood, it ought to cause an effective change in us as we weep over it, as we rejoice in what God has done for us. I want to change for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's what verse 12 is talking about here. And it says that Timoth, Titus, who is the pastor, should instruct them. And as I looked at this, I thought, you know what? There's some interesting football tactics here. I, I know Evanston is a great football town. And they have a great football team. My wife and I try to go to a game at least once a year. Enjoy that. But as I looked at this, there are actually some defensive moves that are supposed to happen here. It says to deny. That, that means don't let it in. Don't let them uh, pursue me. Keep it away. Don't give access. What am I supposed to have a defensive move against? Well, ungodliness, first of all. What's ungodliness? Well, it's everything that doesn't have to do with God himself. Well, how do I know? Well, I, as I was thinking about it, I, I, I was reminded of three specific scriptures that call me to ask a question. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I'm sorry, chapter uh, 10, verse 31. What, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When I think of godliness and ungodliness, I, I come to a text like that and it's, I said, it forces me to ask the question, what I'm doing, does it bring glory to God? You know, so is, uh, maybe you're sitting there looking on the computer at things you ought not to look at. Just asking that simple question, I'm wondering if this is bringing glory to God. Or you're, you're talking behind someone's back, <laughs> gossiping. I'm wondering if this is bringing glory to God. That kind of question helps us wrestle with what's godly and what's ungodliness. Another text would be Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That forces me to ask the question, can I thank God for what I'm doing? <laughs> you know, so as I'm in the midst of... Uh, you know, slamming on my horn at the driver in front of me? Can I thank God for that kind of attitude? <laughs> and many other things. Can I thank God for the attitude that I am having? And then the final question would be over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Colossians 3. 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks through him to God the glory. You know, when you, you start putting that in the context of what you're doing, it doesn't take very long to decide what's godly and ungodly. And those things that don't answer well those questions. They're ungodly and we're supposed to deny them access to our lives. We're also to deny worldly desires. 
Uh, what are worldly desires? Well, like we could make a long list of them, but Romans chapter 12, verse 1, uh, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of uh, this world. So you, you know what the list would be. Here's how the world operates. This is what their passion is. This is what their interest is. Are those things of interest to God? Worldly desires. Those are the defensive moves. But he goes on to instruct them in what would be offensive moves. To live sensibly. That's dealing with our, Christ, our personal Christian life. Not allowing my appetites and passions to run wild. Righteously. That's the Christian life in relationship to other people. How am I treating them? Am I kind to them? Am I loving to them? And godly. That's the Christian life in relationship to God. Are my thoughts like John Newton's life? He said, make it a rule of the Christian duty never to go to a place where there is not room for my master as well as myself. This is transformation. God invites us to partner with him in being transformed by denying ungodliness and worldly desires and living sensibly, righteously, and godly. Well, the gospel is also a, not only a past event and a present reality, but it is a future hope. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right there, it's very clear that Jesus Christ is coming back. And that report was given over and over again throughout Scripture. The angels said this to the disciples in Acts chapter 111. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go to heaven. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then Paul writing to the early church in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. There's no discussion on the fact that Jesus is coming back. That's what the gospel is, and this is what we're supposed to preach. A past event, redemption, and salvation, a work of God alone. A present reality, transformation or sanctification, it's a partnership with God and seeing our lives change in response to his glorious work of salvation. And we do this looking forward to the future hope, Christ's return. Well, let's go back to Mark chapter 16, verse 15, and 
finalize the task that we have. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. We know where we're supposed to go. The whole world. We know what we're supposed to do when we get there. Preach the gospel. But to whom do we preach it? It says to all creation. You see, this message is for young and old, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, high social standing, low social standing, religious, unreligious, not just those we like to be with, but even those we don't like to be with, not just those who are easy to be with, but also people that have you know, baggage and we don't want to get involved with them. Where in the world has God called you to preach? This is not just a text for those who are professionals. Are you uh, a student at Northwestern? Are you a, a, a lawyer in the loop? Are you working in one of the local hospitals? Are you a city employee? Wherever your world is, you are to be there sharing this wonderful truth of Christ. God has brought you to that section of the world. You are the light. You are the salt. You are his ambassador. And why? Because we have wonderful news. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And this is our task and we need to stay on task with the task that's been given to us until Christ's return. Now, I have to ask this question. Are you ready for Jesus' return? I have no doubt that in a group this size, there are people who are ready for Christ to return and know his blessing and there are people here who do not know Christ, are not ready for his turn, and will have to receive his judgment. I've shared with you a wonderful truth. God's grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has brought you salvation through his death. I challenge you that if you are, are not one of his and are not longing for his return, to claim that gospel as your own and, be see, and begin to see Christ through the Holy Spirit transform your life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you give us a glorious message of hope. Thank you that Christ is coming back and we do not at all need to fear it but we can look forward to it and rejoice in his return. Thank you that you allowed yourself to be seen through the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for anyone who is here today that does not know the gospel as their personal truth, that they would claim that as their own today, so that they do not need to worry about your judgment. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. We ask your continued blessing on them. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.